Hebrews chapter 5, in just a moment, we'll turn our attention again uh, to the New Testament and what it is telling us about discernment. And so we'll, we'll be in, uh, we, we've got there's some verses on your notes for tonight, and then, there are, then there's this uh, a text that we will turn to. But before we get to that, I've, I've got a question for you. How many of you in here like riddles, brain teasers? Anybody like those kinds of things? All right. How many of you hate, hate them? All right. Usually it's one of the other. Okay, I don't like them. Uh, I fancy myself to be rather intelligent until you give me a brain teaser, and I never get them. All right. I never get them. And so I just don't like them at all. Uh, but I did find a few. If you know them, don't yell out. Okay. This is just for you to do in your own mind to figure out just how smart are you. All right. So, so these are just a few that I, that I found. What do you put in a toaster? Now, did anybody here think toast? All right, you don't have to admit it, all right? But my guess is somebody thought, well, you put toast in a toaster, which of course you don't. Put bread in a toaster, right? Okay. Now, maybe you've heard this one before. Say silk five times fast. Silk, 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 silk. Spell silk five times. S-I-L-K, S-I-L-K, S-I-L-K. Say that five times. Now tell me what do cows drink? And if you're thinking milk... What, what do cows drink, people? Water. Okay, all right, so there's one. Some of you are still thinking about that, right? That took you a minute. And don't come up to me and say, what about calves? All right, that just means you missed it and you feel bad for missing it. Okay, I get it, okay? But grown cows don't drink milk. Okay, all right, here's another one. On my road, there's a red house made with red bricks, there's a blue house made with blue bricks, there's a pink house made with pink bricks, and there's a black house made with black bricks. Then what is a green house made with? I told you not to yell it out. Because you people have heard this. All right, so, you do that again, I'm going to have to make you leave. All right, I don't know what else to tell you. See, so the people who answer it, here's what you can be sure of. They've heard it before, and they want you to think they're smart, all right? But they've heard it before, and that's why they yelled it out. How about this one? A clerk at a butcher shop stands 5 feet 10 inches tall, wears a size 11 sneaker. What does he weigh? Meat. Yeah, he weighs meat because he's a butcher, right? Okay, he weighs meat. He's a butcher. Now, no, everybody gets one shot, so I give Sandy one more shot, all right? Here's another one. A doctor gives you three pills and tells you to take one every half hour. How long will it take you until all the pills are taken? It takes one hour. One hour. Okay, all right. So you saw, okay, that's a good one, right? So if you're taking three pills, one every half hour, you take it at the beginning of the half hour, you take it at the beginning of the next half hour, then you take it at the beginning of the next half hour. How much time is in between? One hour, all right? It is one hour in between. All right, so that's it. I don't have any more. All of us feel silly enough, except for you people who pretended to know the answer when you'd heard it before. All right. Now, here's, here's though what, what riddles, you know, riddles, brain teasers, these kinds of things. Uh, you know, the trick to them is their subtlety, right? And in other words, I mean, obviously, there's really nothing about them. It's not like you need to be, you know, a Jeopardy champion to be able to know how to answer these things. That there is a subtlety to them. There is a trick to them. There is a way a question is being asked. 
It could be a particular style, right? Somebody is asking you a string of questions, trying to get you to answer another one. Maybe it's one that requires you to kind of piece things together or look at it from a different angle. In other words, to to be able to answer riddles, brain teasers correctly, you've got to be able to pick out the subtle differences in the way a question is asked so that you can figure out the answer. I I mean, I think in a lot of ways this is what discernment is all about. I mean, it'd be one thing if somebody stands in a pulpit or writes a book or somebody is producing music or Christian movies or whatever— and they're blatantly declaring heresy. I mean, if I stand up on a Sunday morning and say, now open to whatever, whatever in the Quran, that's going to be a red flag, right? I mean, you're immediately going to think, okay. And then if I say, by the way, I've replaced all the Bibles and the pews with Qurans, all right? So we've got a problem, right? You would know. You don't have to be discerning at that point, right? That's right, by the way. You don't have to be discerning at that point. You should know Time to fire the pastor, all right? That's the only option. You know, if I were to stand up here and I were to say, you know, normally I like to talk about the Bible, but today I found Hinduism to be a blessing. So let's talk about that. So that's not what we're talking about. I guess as most folks in this room aren't going to be persuaded by what I would call blatant heresy. If somebody were to do a TV show on why Jesus was never a real person in the first place, By the way, there are people who think that. I doubt anybody in this room is going to be moved by that, right? Now, the reason why we need discernment is because there are subtle dangers out there in the evangelical world. There are those who look the part, sound the part, maybe even use all of the right parts that they preach, they teach, quote the Bible. They seem sincere. People seem blessed by them. In other words, they have all of these features to them, and it makes it seem like these are legit and real people that we could listen to and and trust. In fact, if you listen to them, and and you may even tune in for five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes, you might even get it through a whole sermon by somebody and think, you know what? I didn't see anything wrong. But listen to two, listen to five, listen to a few hours worth, listen as they handle Scripture. In other words, there is a need in the evangelical world among believers, pastors and church members alike, people in the pulpit and people in the pew, to be able to discern subtle means by which the Bible, theology, our understanding of truth and doctrine... Theological principles are being undermined because subtly, subtly, people are saying things, teaching things that violate God's Word. Discernment is, is, an, is an action that requires careful attention to all of the details in order to sniff out the parts that clearly violate what the Bible would be teaching. So, this is the series that we've been in for the last few weeks. We've been looking at discernment in particular. We've been trying to define discernment. And so, if you look at your outline, we've been through a few parts thus far. We did kind of a basic definition of it. Then we started looking at a biblical definition of discernment. We spent time in the Old Testament. And then, last week, we spent time in the New Testament. 
So tonight we're going to turn our attention once again to the New Testament and uh, pick up where we left off from last week, looking at what, how does the New Testament encourage us to be discerning. We noted that just like the old, there's a variety of words that are used, not only discernment, but words like wisdom, understanding, knowledge, test, prove. So all of these words, this is all language of discernment. So we, we looked at, at these passages, Matthew 10, 16, uh, Jesus warns, you know, that we're going to, there are being sent out, sheep being sent out among wolves, that there are wolves out there. And he warned then his disciples to be as, as wise as a serpent, but as gentle as a dove. We looked at the noble Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Then we took just a minute and we looked at Romans 12 too. These are in your notes. Going to the next slide, we also got to Philippians 1.9. Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, that they would grow in their love and, and in their love and knowledge and discernment. They would grow in their discernment. Now, let's look at another one. So it's there on your notes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22. So Paul gives a really simple command here. Test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So there's really not a whole lot that you can say about that. I I mean, obviously I'm going to say a few things about it, but, but it's pretty straightforward, right? This is a command, so it's in an imperative tense here. When he says, test all things, that is a command. That is something we are expected to do. It's instruction given to all believers. So it's not just instruction given to, say, pastors or teachers or seminary professors or really, really, you know, important people in leadership. The expectation is that the church would test. The word test there, similar to what we've already seen, say in Romans chapter 12, where it means to test in order to approve something. To, to, to evaluate it, to, to lay, lay it out, to look at it, to turn it over, uh, to look at it from all angles, to figure out its worth, its value, test all things. Now, I, I should point out, you know, when it says test all things, obviously Paul is saying that in the context of doctrine, right? Christian living. In other words, if somebody comes up to you and says... I like this brand of ice cream better than this brand of ice cream. All right, you don't have to, I mean, I would test it, all right? But you don't have to test that, okay? Like that's, he doesn't, when he says test all things, he doesn't mean absolutely everything that may come your way. He's talking theologically, doctrinally, biblically. When somebody is making a truth claim in the name of Christ, when somebody is claiming the Bible says, whatever, fill in the blank, test all things. Now, I think it's significant that this kind of command is used, and, and like the folks in Thessalonica, uh, Paul had only been with them for three weeks. Paul, you can tell by reading the letters to this church, Paul was concerned for them, that they were in a bit of a hotbed of persecution. And, and so, so you know, Paul wants to make sure this church is still standing firm, staying strong in the faith, being a Greek city. There were all kinds of opportunities to abandon the faith. So Paul's command to them is to make sure that whatever comes across their table, so to speak, 
their theological, doctrinal, biblical table, they should test it. And, and note the intentionality of this. You should evaluate the truth claims that you hear. You should evaluate those individuals who hold a Bible in their hand and say, this is what God's Word means. You should test that. And I don't mean, I don't mean that, you know, that you should be overly critical, right? What I mean by testing, what I think he means by testing is, so put it to the test, approve of it. If somebody says, well, as we know, Hebrews chapter 4 says, but they don't quote it, they just paraphrase it, they may be right, but you should go back and read it. There's going to be many times in a sermon, I will tell you, like so-and-so said in such-and-such a book, and we may not go to it, I may not turn to it, but I may quote it, I may refer to it, I may paraphrase it, and there's nothing wrong with doing it that way, but but if you hear me say something and connect it to another point, and you think, huh, I, I wonder if that's right, you should write it down. and Go back and read it. Go back and see, is, 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 this, is he rightly handling the Word? Now, I know you hear me say that, and you think, Pastor, who, what? I mean, here, here you are, you're the guy, right? 20 years, you tell us that all the time, all right? You drop in, you got a PhD every time you get a chance to, all right? And just did it just then. Uh, so what do you mean, I, I'm supposed to test you? You're a believer, right? If you answer no to that, we need another discussion after the service, all right? Okay? To be fine, I'd be glad to have that, okay? Believer means you have the Holy Spirit. Everybody here's got an English translation? Anybody need a Bible? I'll buy one for you, all right? No, probably everybody. You have more Bibles. If I were to ask you how many Bibles do you have in your home, you know what your answer will be? I don't know how many. That's what your answer will be. I don't have any idea. I would have to go home and count. Okay, so you've got them. So that means you have resources, to be able to read, study, understand, test, and approve truth claims that are being made. Now, maybe something may be said, and you do that, you go back to the text, you look at it, you read it, you try and you know, discern, is this right or wrong, and maybe you're thinking, I don't know, this, this seems like a really tricky text, and uh, maybe you read some stuff about it, you looked up in your study notes, whatever it may be, so, you know, there's some debate there. All right, well, come on, bring it. Bring it on then to me, and we'll, let's work it out. But the instruction here, I think, is critical. But this is where I think a lot of believers, just, they just don't want to do this. One, maybe they feel like it's inappropriate to do it. Who, who am I? Who am I to be critical of what somebody else has said? And maybe we just don't think we have enough knowledge to be able to do it. Paul's command is clear. Test all things. And then notice those next two bits of instruction because they're tied. Test all things, and then what do you do with it? You hold fast to what is good, you abstain from every form of evil. In other words, this is the end, this is the end result. <laughs> you, you do the one so that then you can evaluate. If it doesn't stand up, if it doesn't hold up, if when you test it, you can't approve it, it doesn't measure up. When you try and vet it and it doesn't fulfill the expectations you would have for it, then you jettison it. Hold fast to what is good, but abstain from every form of evil. All right, next one, Hebrews chapter 5, and so it's the blank that's in your uh, notes there. Hebrews chapter 5, 
We're going to read verses 12 through 14. Before we, we read this, I, I, know, I know there's some ladies in this room that better be able to determine if I'm handling this text rightly. Right, Margie? Right? There's some ladies in this room. You've been studying Hebrews for a long time, so you should be able to. All right. Tell the pastor if he's getting this right. So, but just to kind of put this in context, he, Hebrews is, is a book that takes us through a series of arguments about the superiority of Christ. Christ is better than everything in the Old Testament. So, so he, he, and the reason is because he's the fulfillment of it all. So this is the argument that's tracked throughout the book. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament covenant. Uh, he's better than the priesthood. He is, he's better than the tabernacle, uh, better than the sacrificial system. These are the things that are pointed out in the book of Hebrews. Now, all along the way, the author of Hebrews then inserts what are called warning passages. So he, he makes some of these points, this is why Jesus is better, in essence saying, here's why you should believe the gospel. And then he inserts these warning passages as if to say, and if you don't believe the gospel, then there, there are going to be serious consequences. You, you should believe this, you should embrace this, you should trust this. So all along the way, he kind of inserts these little words of either admonishment or exhortation or sometimes out-and-out warning, and some of the warnings like chapter 6 and 10 are really strong ones. At this point, though, I think verses 12 through 14 is taking to task the believers, and he's accusing them of spiritual immaturity. And notice then how, how he says this. So, so he's given a number of, uh, of, of arguments here related to Christ, spirit of Christ, uh, the, the, the lack of unbelief among the generation of Israelites in the wilderness. He's talked about the priesthood, Melchizedek. But then he says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. So, so he's, he's chastising these folks as if to say, I, I shouldn't have to be teaching this stuff again. You should know this, but, but, but I'm having to reteach you these, these fundamental truths, which is fascinating, by the way, that the author of the book of Hebrews considers our knowledge of Melchizedek to be fundamental knowledge. Don't worry, I'm not going to pick on any of you to ask you after the service how much do you know about Melchizedek and why does he matter to New Testament theology, all right? Clearly, the author of Hebrews thinks, yeah, everybody should know this, all right? You've come to need milk, not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, note that language. He is, he is unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, he's, he's having trouble then fully understanding truth. But solid food, belongs to those who are of full age, meaning those who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, get this, to discern both good and evil. So again, the language of discernment showing up here and being just that, that ability to evaluate that ability to make distinctions, that ability to discriminate, to set out the options, to know 
what's good and what's, what's evil. And it's interesting what, what the author here is saying, which, by the way, just so I don't have to keep saying it that way, I think Paul preached it and I think Luke wrote it down. All right? So, that, that's, there's, that's a common question about what's going on in Hebrews, but nobody knows. First word of the book Hebrews is God, so that's really all that matters. God wrote the book. But, but I, I think what, what Paul is getting at here is this encouragement that you and I would be giving ourselves to a skill, that we would be intentionally developing that language, have their senses exercised to discern. This is something that takes intentionality. It's a discipline. I think this is really important. Because here's what I'm afraid happens, church. I'm afraid we just rely on our own logic or our gut feelings or our sixth sense about things. And let's be honest. Sometimes your gut has been way off, right? Sometimes what what seemed like the logical choice, you'd look back and think, wow, that was a really bad decision. In other words, our intuition, it's not as spot on as we would like to think it is. And when it comes to spiritual things, theological things, doctrinal things, you and I cannot afford to just go by our gut. This is what people do. People listen to somebody preach and they say, you know what, he uses the Bible a lot, quotes a lot of Bible verses, seems really sincere. I think I saw him cry a little bit. I saw people in the audience cry a little bit. I know so-and-so, they've been blessed for years by so-and-so's ministry. None of those are tests for truth ever found in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can tell a false teacher from a true one by those who cry or don't cry. It's not in there. So we need to have our senses exercised. This requires a discipline. It requires intentionality. We need to do this kind of thing on purpose. I think that's what he's encouraging us to do. That, we, that we, we, would, we would have this ability. And he's saying this is what mature people do. Mature people do this. Mature believers do this. All right, next one is 1 John 4, 1. It's a text that we'll turn to again at some point. Because 1 John, he lays out for us some of the tests of what a false teacher is versus what a true teacher is. But he gives us the simple instruction, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. That's, that's just a way of saying, don't believe everybody who comes and claims to have a message of truth or a message of the Spirit. Don't, don't, don't believe it. You're not obligated to believe it just because somebody comes and says, I think God told me. There's better, there better be some chapter and verse with that because that's a bold swing. And so John is telling us, don't believe every spirit. Test them. Again, that's the same language. Test in order to approve. So this, this is, again, all that we've been through in the New Testament. This, this is not all that we could have walked through in terms of the text related to discernment, but I think these get to the heart of them. And the instruction is simple. From Old and New Testament, there is an expectation that you and I would be practicing discernment, growing in our discernment, pursuing it as a discipline Christian living, just a part of what you and I should be doing. All right, let's go on to the next section. So we're going to wrap this part of it up uh, tonight, and I I just want to mention two other things. One, I want to make another comment about about 
discernment and the canon of Scripture. You'll see there in your, uh, in your notes, it's the, next, um, it's the next part. Discernment and the canon of Scripture. I've made these comments along the way, but I just wanted to make sure they were formally written down here um, in, in what, you, what you've got, just so that we can make this clear. The, the Bible is referred to as the canon, and you'll note that that's spelled C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N, all right? So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're not talking about, you know, big, big lead balls being fired at you, all right? That's not what it means. The word canon means rule or standard. And the reason I bring this up is because all that we're talking about, discernment, Everything about this, growing in understanding, wisdom, prudence, being able to test and prove, being discerning, being able to, to tell, is somebody speaking truth or not? Does it, is, is it theologically, biblically, doctrinally, is it accurate? In order to do that, we need to measure these words against a standard. And, and, and perhaps this even goes without saying, but we're saying it anyway. That standard is the Bible. The Bible is the canon. Now, there's a lot of historical realities associated with that language, canon. We won't get into it tonight, though I've talked about it uh, before. But, but the, it was established as the canon because it's the recognized standard. It is the measure. It is that against which all other things should be compared and contrasted. This is critical if we're going to get discernment right. The Bible stands as the final arbiter here, the ultimate authority in regard to what is true, what is right. It it is the Bible that is our standard, our rule. I've, I've given this statement out before. It is my favorite because it's all alliterated and it's in Latin. All right, so it's there in your notes. Uh, I think it should be on the next one. This is, a, this is a slogan from the, uh, from the Reformation. And I know you're looking at it and thinking, that's crazy, but you'll impress people if you use this one, all right? The Bible is described as the Norma Normans non normata. All right, the Norma Normans non normata. It's just so, just all the ends just sound really good to my ear. Maybe nobody else cares about it. All right, maybe I'm the only odd one out, but I think some of you else, are, some of you others are weird like that, and you think it's great. So, the, the norman, normans, non-normata, it means the norm of norms which cannot be normed. Now, you may think, okay, all that sounds really weird until you put it in its context, and here you got a monk like Martin Luther telling the Pope, it doesn't matter what you say Scripture means, because you're not the authority. And they wanted to kill him for it. So, Luther is a guy who says, the Bible is the norm of all norms. The Bible is that which determines that which is true or not. I don't care what the Pope says. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what the church said in the past. This is not the ultimate authority for truth. The Bible stands above the Pope. The Bible stands above the church. The Bible stands above tradition. All of these things submit to Scripture. They all submit to Scripture. So it is the ultimate norm. Everything has to be measured against it. 
So that is why it is the canon. That is why it is the standard. Again, this, this helps us guard against the problem of just basing our views of what somebody says on, well, it seems right to me. It seemed okay to me. And I listened to it, and, you know, he was really smart and funny. So it seemed good. So relying just on our own logic or our, on our own intuition, it, 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 is, it requires careful measurement against the Bible. So when we go into a section where we're going to talk about the anatomy of a false teacher, the anatomy of a true teacher, when I lay out ways you can discern good teachers from bad teachers, all of that must draw from Scripture. That is the measure against uh, which that's what we'll measure all things against. Again, we'll talk more about it when we get to it. but just to go ahead and give you maybe a little bit of insight here to help you if you're listening, because you're going to be listening to people between now and then, you're reading books, whatever the case may be, to say that the Bible then is the standard means you, you want to begin growing your discernment. If you want to begin thinking this way, then ask yourself, whenever you're listening to somebody preach or teach, or you're reading a book that claims to be a Christian book, ask yourself this, How do they use the Bible? How do they use the Bible? I mentioned last week, red flags go up when I hear somebody quoting a lot of Bible verses from a lot of different translations and quoting verses, phrases of verses. If I hear somebody that's just quoting phrases and they're never taking me back to the text and they're never giving me the context, and they're, they're, they're never helping me understand what this text means in the flow of whatever book it's coming in. That's when a red flag goes up. And so then you need to make sure that their teaching lines up with Scripture. So I, I want their information to come from the Bible and to rightly handle the Bible. So, f- for example, when I hear, and you may recognize the name, Jesse Duplantis... Right? This name sounds familiar. He's a big TBN guy. All right, When I hear him do an entire sermon where he preaches about a dream he had where he went to heaven and Abraham gave him a tour of heaven, a red flag should go up there, church. Right? It should go up there. Now, Jesse Duplantis is an easy pick, right? He's an easy one to fire at. But Beth Moore does the same thing. She does the same thing. She'll spend 20 minutes telling women in the audience, she's teaching them from a vision God gave her on a back porch. I don't understand why either one of them would be worse than the other. They both violate what would be reasonable expectation as it pertains to someone wanting to be a Bible teacher. So how is the Bible being used? And is, is it biblical content that seems to make up the majority of what it is they're talking about. All right, so let's fill in these last little parts here. Let me give you then four categories 
of, of how, how we are then trying to develop our discernment. Four ways in which we are to discern or distinguish. So these are the final blanks to fill in. Four ways to try and discern. First, first set of categories, we want to be able to discern truth from error. You, you could call this theological or philosophical discernment. In other words, I'm trying to discern truth from error. Is, is, this is doctrine. Are, are the truth claims they're making, are they indeed true? So part of my discernment is going to be trying to determine, is this true or, or is it false? Number two, we want to then be able to discern right from wrong. So if the first one is theological, this one would be moral or ethical. I also want to be able to discern right living from wrong living. So though our focus in discernment and teaching on discernment is how can we evaluate other people out there in the evangelical world, how can we guard ourselves against false teaching, note that the biblical material for discernment encourages me to discern truth from error, but also to know right from wrong. This is the essence of biblical wisdom, by the way. This is the book of Proverbs, that I would be able to discern the pathway of God, the pathway of righteousness, that I would be able to know that which is appropriate, right, moral, versus that which is wrong or, or sinful or rebellious. Number three, I also want to be able to discern good from bad. Good from bad. Uh, and I would call this like like aesthetics, meaning, uh, or, or even method. What, what, I, what I mean by this, to be able to discern the good from the bad, is to be able, not necessarily to distinguish, you know, something that is immoral from that which is moral, but that which is helpful, that which, that which is, is healthy, uh, that, that, that which will contribute to Christian growth and sanctification. Now, granted, this could involve the first two. But again, I, I'm thinking largely of, 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 say, methods of doing things. Now, that may sound like a weird way to say it, but I, I, could, I could put it this way. I, I remember hearing a well-known Christian author on leadership telling me that in order to become a better pastor, I needed to study the traits of the leading CEOs of companies in the United States. That's what I needed to be able to do. So I needed to study the CEO of McDonald's. And at this time, this was several years ago, so I don't think there was Amazon, I don't think there was Google, so it'd be something like McDonald's, um, Starbucks was, was a big one at the time. Uh, IBM, Apple was for sure a big one. And so, and so books were written by Christian authors telling me that these, this is what a leader looks like. I remember seeing one book that described what a leader looked like and not one of the qualities of the leader was faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you write a book on Christian leadership and not talk about Jesus? right? I mean, Eli, my eight-year-old, if I were to ask him, what's a good Christian leader? He's going to mention Jesus at some point, all right? So how do you do that? So that's what I mean by the good from the bad. Now, could I read a book about 
leadership styles and ideas from CEOs of corporate America and glean helpful things from it? Well, sure. Sure I could. I mean, organizations are organizations, and you know, there's some features of leadership that would transcend from one type to another. But should I be giving the lion's share of my time to studying how Starbucks got so good? Well, no. So I want to be able to discern the good from the bad. Number four, and this brings it all together, I also want to be able to discern primary from secondary. And so I hope in the rest of our time together, these are the four things we'll be able to do, with the fourth one then being perhaps the most difficult. What do I mean by discerning primary from secondary? One through three are pretty black and white, right? I want to discern truth from error, right from wrong, good from bad. How much error can somebody have before I kick them to the curb? How much can I disagree with somebody? What can I disagree with on someone? What, what about good from bad? What about methodology? For, for example, I, I've, I've mentioned, um, I've mentioned a, a couple of pastors that I have great respect for. Sinclair Ferguson, though he's retired. A Scottish Presbyterian, though he pastored for many years. First Presbyterian Columbia, South Carolina. All right, how does a Scottish guy get from there to there? I don't really know, but he did, okay? Now, Sinclair Ferguson is a profound theologian. In fact, I've yet to read anything by him that I thought, that's just silly. It seems like every word he says is thoughtful and helpful, biblical, plus he does it in a Scottish accent, right? So how is that not easy to listen to? But did you know he can't join our church? Because he's never been baptized by immersion. And he's not going to be. So he can't join our church. Now, does that mean then no more Sinclair Ferguson for me? Well, of course not. So that's what I mean when I say primary from secondary. How much can I disagree with somebody and still let them be in my sphere of influence? At what point then do I say, nope, enough is enough? Again, we'll we'll work through this as we go through the rest of this series. But I do want to be able to discern these things. Right from from wrong, all right? Uh, And and again, good, good from bad. What if somebody's got some stuff in their methodology and way of doing church that I... I find problematic, but the lion's share of it is solid and biblical. At what point then do I say, you know what, I just can't endorse them at all? Again, so I think number four is is the hardest part, but may even be the most important, because I am sure there are times you have walked out of this place and thought, I don't agree with what he said. And Again, you're welcome to leave here wrong, all right? I mean, it's fine with me. You are well going to leave here not believing the right things, all right? No, but I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard things or at least thought, hmm, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I, what I think about that. But you, but you came back, all right? So, it, so at what point do we do this? So I think these, this is going to be the helpful um, rest of our study as, as we continue to grow. Now that we've got kind of a definition of discernment, the biblical picture of it, we've laid out some of the categories that we're trying to develop discernment in. 
Uh, and so now as we go on from here, fleshing this out, uh, I hope we'll then prepare ourselves to be more effective when we listen to truth claims coming from those who claim to be speaking for Christ and His gospel and according to His Word. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank You again for gathering Your people. We thank You for the privilege uh, of being able to pray and being able to spend time in Your Word. And Lord, we do ask for wisdom as we seek to be discerning. We want to grow in it. We want to be faithful. We, we want to expose our hearts and minds to, to truth and righteousness and that which is, is good and pure and grows our spirits and, and that which cooperates with your sanctifying work. And so, Father, we, we pray that you'd help us as we seek uh, to develop, as, as mature believers, to develop in our discernment. I thank you for these who are here. I pray, God, your blessing on each and every one of them, that they would know your hand leading and guiding them, uh, that in the days to come they would place all their faith and confidence in you, trusting you as a, as a sovereign God, as a good God. And Lord, we, we just pray that as we trust our lives into your hands, that then you would use us all for your glory. Gather your people back together again, and we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.